The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. For our remaining time this morning, we want to spend it in Ephesians 3. And I told you last week about the Hardy Boys mystery book I'd been reading to my boys. And I promised I told you how it would end, right? So I can't leave you hanging. So this week we spent um, about an hour and a half finishing the Hardy Boy book called The Tower Mansion. I told you about this, this thief who came and stole something from the Tower Mansion. And the Hardy Boys are on a plan to see if they can figure out who done it. And uh, finally we figured out who done it and where the treasure was it was hidden not in the tower mansion tower it was hidden in the old water tower outside of the city and we finally got to the last chapter the mystery is solved the hardy boys figured it out and the town of bayport has been saved through the hardy boys wonderful story and the boys were so excited they said dad you got to read the next one so now we're on the house on a cliff and uh, i'll let you know how that goes <laughs> Mysteries. We love mysteries. Mystery movies, mystery stories. And as we have said in the last few weeks, there's something different about a biblical mystery. The mystery of the Hardy Boys is a mystery of suspense, and it's something that perplexes us. There's something secretive and something that needs to be discovered and figured out, and that's not a biblical mystery. A biblical mystery pertains to something that was previously unknown in the Old Testament. Something previously not understood, never revealed, never disclosed. And we've listed a number of mysteries, but perhaps the greatest mystery of all disclosed in the New Testament is that of the church. This very body that you are a part of here this morning, this very entity known as the church, the body of Christ, was never known in the Old Testament never anticipated, never disclosed, until Christ. Until Christ came and died for sinners and brought them together into one body known as the church. This was a great mystery. And if you look in Ephesians chapter 3, three times this word mystery occurs. It occurs in verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery And in verse 4, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And then down in verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden. So Paul is now the, the revealer of this mystery. He is the one charged by Christ to bring the message of this mystery to the church. 2,000 years later, we're still preaching this mystery. This wonderful reality, this wonderful body of believers, this incredible reality which we are participating in this morning just by being here and by being a part of this body of Christ through Christ. Paul wants us to understand the glories of the mystery of the church. And specifically, he wants us to understand our position before our practice. See, he's going to charge us in chapter 4, you've got to be right with each other. You've got to be unified. You've got to make sure there's no broken relationships between you and another believer. And so in order for us to comprehend that, we must first understand the position that we have in Christ before we can practice that unity that we have in Christ. And so here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul is driving home the fact that positionally we are unified so that practically 
We can work that out throughout the week and in our relationships. By the way, I've heard just in the last couple of weeks how you've been ministering to each other, some specific ways that you've been practicing unity and you've been caring for one another and you've been serving each other and you've been making relationships that were strained better. That's good. And it encourages my heart every time I hear that taking place here at, at our church that, that we're starting to get this and we continue to grow in this area that we as a church need to practice the position that we have in our unity. So Paul continues to, to hammer away at this. And he really wants us to, to understand this profound reality that we possess and participate in in the body of Christ. We looked last week at verses 1 to 7. I want to read starting in verse 7 through the verse 13 this morning of chapter 3. Follow along as I read. Starting in verse 7. He said, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are your glory. You remember last week that we said, starting in verse 1, Paul starts to pray for the Ephesians. In light of this marvelous reality of the church and how we're a part of it and how we get to participate in this body, he, he begins to pray for the Ephesians, for them to truly grasp it and to get it. Verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. He starts to pray for them. And if you have a Bible like I have, at the end of verse 1, there's a dash. And that's a way of saying, uh, Paul got sidetracked. Paul got a, a little off course. He, he digressed at this point, and he didn't complete his thought. In fact, the thought doesn't complete until verse 14. Look down at verse 14. For this reason. You see, it starts the same way verse 1 starts. Verse 1 starts for this reason. Verse 14 starts for this reason. He got sidetracked. He got distracted a little bit in verse 1 as he begins to pray. And so verses 2 to 13 are what's known as a parenthesis, where he is inserting something between this prayer in order for them to understand. I think what Paul's doing here is he begins to pray for them, but then he realizes they don't quite get it yet. They're not quite yet convinced of this marvelous reality of the church and this glorious entity known as the body of Christ. They don't quite understand yet. So he goes back to explain it some more. This is part five of our discussion of this whole mystery of the body of Christ. And it must be something that Paul wants us to understand. And so this morning we want to look at a continuation of this mystery. We looked at three points last week. I want to share with you a few more points starting today as we finish out this passage. And you can pray for me. My voice Hopefully we'll make it. All right, so here we go. We'll give this a shot. Number four. We've looked at three points already. We've looked at the prisoner of this mystery and the revelation of this mystery and the explanation of this mystery. We want to look, number four, now at the minister of this mystery. And this is where we're going over here for the next 
few minutes. The minister of this mystery. Verse 7. Paul says, I would made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So here Paul begins to give us this little insight, this little window into what it was like to be a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I was made a, a minister, a servant. The idea here is someone who waits tables, someone who, who is able just to serve someone else, someone who, who delivers the goods on the command of another and submits to a higher authority. This is a servant, a minister, a diakonos. And Paul says, I was made this by Christ. It's passive. Paul didn't do this to himself. Paul didn't sign up for this. He, he didn't in any way make himself, he was made a minister of the gospel. Remember on the road to Damascus, as he's walking along, all of a sudden the lights from heaven shine and he's miraculously converted and saved. And Christ gets his attention. He he grabs him by the lapels, as it were, and says, you are going to be my man to the Gentiles. He was made a minister. And here Paul gives us a little window into the fact that it was all grace that did this. I want you to notice in verse 7 the word grace occurs. And in verse 8 the word grace occurs as well. This is all grace. This is an all, all an act of God's kindness to, to Paul who was once a persecutor of the church and a hater of Christians. Once who made his life about killing Christians and killing believers, and here he is now radically transformed, radically changed, and he's made a minister of this mystery. What a profound transformation has taken place in Paul's life, and it's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all kindness of God delivered to Paul to transform him and then send him out as a minister to the gospel of the Gentiles. You get the sense here that Paul just can't get over this fact. Verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You see what he's saying? He can't get over the fact that what he once was is not what he is anymore, and he's been radically changed through the gospel, and now he gets to take that same gospel out to the people who were once separate from Christ and separate from the Jewish people. He says, I'm just a servant. Just a waiter. I just take the goods. I just deliver what was entrusted to me to those who get to hear it. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. I want you to think about this with me. Paul understands that first and foremost, he is a servant and he is a steward. And he is not a self-made man. He is just one who's been entrusted by God's grace to this marvelous privilege of delivering the good news to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 4 says, I'm just a servant. It's a great word. It's not the word here. In this passage, she uses the word servant, diakonos. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, it's the word huperetes. Now let me share a little insight, because I think it gives you an insight into Paul's heart here. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Literally, an under rower. Let me explain this to you. In that day, there were big ships. And on those ships, there were 
rowers to make that ship go. No engines in that day. And so in order to make that ship move, they had men who rowed that ship. And they had three different levels on that ship of rowers. They had the top tier rowers, the middle tier rowers, and the bottom level rowers. Those guys were the huperetes, the under rowers. They were the third level, lowest level slaves put on a boat to make it go. And you can imagine everything that happened above them eventually trickled down to their lowest level. Nasty, gross, horrible, degrading place to be. Just above those men was a captain who would shout out orders to these under rowers. This third level, as he got commands from the captain of the ship, he would pass them on to these third level under rowers, and they would simply do what he commands them to do, to turn right, to turn left, to pull, to stop. They were under rowers, under the command and instruction of the captain. The lowest of the low, and Paul says, that's all I am. I'm just an under rower. I'm just a servant and when it's all said and done, let it be said of me that I have pulled my oar for Christ. That's all I want to be known for. I want to be known as a man who preached the gospel to the Gentiles, who was faithful in that, who did it as God instructed me to do. And may I be one who simply pulled my oar for the cause of Christ. What a great attitude. It says something similar here in chapter 3, verse 7. I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace. Listen, mark this down. Ministry is a grace. All ministry is a gift. All ministry is a mercy. Every time you are given the opportunity to preach the gospel, to minister to someone, to invest in someone, it's all grace. Grandparents? When you have the privilege of investing in your grandkids, that's grace. Parents, when you have the privilege and the joy of teaching your kids, that's, that's grace. When you have the opportunity to go and share Christ with someone at work, that's grace. That's a gift. Don't ever, ever forget that ministry is a grace. Ministry is a gift. And all we are are the servants. We're not, we're not the cooks who make the stuff. We're just the waiters who deliver it. And we need to remember that, that when we lose our sense of servanthood, we also lose the power and the usefulness that God enables us to accomplish those tasks. We're just servants. And yet when we exalt ourselves, when we begin to minister in our own power according to our own plans, we actually cut ourselves off from the sustaining grace that God enables us to fulfill those responsibilities. Don't ever forget you're a servant. Don't ever forget you're an under-rower. Don't ever forget that the ministry that God has entrusted to you are simply an overflow of his grace to you. Look at verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. What a great statement. He, he says, I'm just the least of all saints. What a profound statement. This is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the writer of half the New Testament. And he says, I'm just, I'm just the least of all the saints. Literally, it's, I'm the leaster. That's not really a word, but you get the idea, right? I'm the leastest. I'm the leaster. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the less of the less. I'm the small of the smallest. 
I don't think Paul is putting on a front here. I don't think this is mock humility on his part. He is genuine. He is really amazed and overwhelmed at the fact that God would be so gracious to him, a persecutor of the church and a hater of Christians, to entrust him with the great privilege and joy of preaching the gospel. He says, I'm just, I'm just the least of all saints. Remember over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said something similar. He said, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, among whom I am the foremost. Remember that? That's all we are. We're just sinners saved by grace. The foremost of sinners, Paul says of himself, he knew grace, he understood mercy, and here he is saying, not only do I get the privilege and the joy of being saved, I get the privilege and joy of being able to communicate this truth to others. What a marvelous, marvelous reality. Mark this down, the great joy of ministry is that God uses frail, broken vessels for his glory, doesn't he? That is the great, marvelous reality of any ministry, whether it's formal ministry, whether it's informal ministry, whether it's one-on-one -on -one discipleship, whether it's what it's, you're doing in your family. It doesn't matter. The great joy of ministry is that God takes frail vessels, weak people, and he turns them into trophies of his grace and uses them for his glory. We never should forget that. And I'll be honest with you that I don't know if I've ever gotten over that. I get to stand up here, even when my voice barely works, and speak forth the profound mysteries of Christ. What a privilege. What a joy. And the same thing is true for you when you get to do the same. Ministry is a mercy. It's a gift. It's an evidence of his grace to us that he can take these frail, broken, weak vessels that we are. We're just clay pots. And he speaks the message through that so that the power will be of God, not from ourselves. Friends, this is the key to your usefulness. Mark this down. The key to your usefulness in ministry is your attitude of your position. Once you forget that you're a dependent servant of Christ, and once you begin pursuing your own ambitions, your own desires, your own name, your own reputation, your own passions, your own recognition, your own fame, you've just cut yourself off from the key to effective ministry. The key to effective ministry is deep dependence on Christ. Understanding that it's a gift of His grace to you to be able to do that. We're just the servants. And Paul gets that. This is the minister of the mystery. I want to show you number two. Or number five, actually, in our continuation from last week. Number five is the, the message of the mystery. I want you to understand the message of the mystery that Paul is preaching. And it's at the end of verse 8. He says at the end of verse 8, I'm called to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What a great summary of the message that we deliver, the message of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, the message that you and I continue to preach is the unfathomable riches of Christ. I love that statement. 
Paul says, I have been graced with this immense privilege to serve as God's messenger. And the message I'm preaching is the unfathomable, undiscernible, completely deep mysteries of Christ. He says, that's what I preach. And the word for preacher is not the word keruso, which is normally used to preach or proclaim. It's the word euangelizo, where we get our word evangelize or evangelism. He says, I am called by Christ as a messenger to the Gentiles to proclaim, literally to evangelize and to speak forth the good news of the unfathomable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great summary of what you and I do. We are called to do the same thing. This is the content of Paul's message. This is the content of any faithful minister of the gospel. Any faithful preacher of the truth will preach those things. They will preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. This word unfathomable means literally that which cannot be traced out. It is that which you cannot draw a line back to and contain all of it in a description. It's unfathomable. It's inexplorable. It's unsearchable. It's inexhaustible. These are the kind of words that you would use to translate this word. It's incalculable. It's infinite. Those are the riches of Christ. You will never plumb the depths of the mysteries and the glories and the riches of Christ. I was reading this week. An article about the catalog of the seas. This is a study that was done uh, over the last 10, 12 years. A study done by 360 researchers from over 80 countries, and they were cataloging what lives in the sea. Interesting. And as I was reading this article, I was shocked at what they were saying. The result of this, art, this catalog is that some 230,000 entries in this catalog of what lives in the sea, almost a quarter million entries of what lives in the ocean, from the smallest single-cell plankton to the largest blue whale. They've cataloged almost a quarter million. And then one of the biologists who was involved in this study said, the ocean is simply so vast that after 10 years of hard work, we still have only a snapshot of what the sea contains. In fact, they estimate that there are some 10 million different species that live in the ocean. From the smallest plankton to fish to all kinds of creatures. 10 million species. And 360 researchers over the course of 10 years could only catalog a quarter million. That's staggering. The biodiversity in the ocean is simply staggering. And you can study it, and you can plumb its depths, and you can go research it, and you can see all the things that live there, and you will never in your lifetime catalog what lives in the ocean. It's unfathomable. So are the mysteries of Christ. You can plumb the mysteries of Christ, the riches of Christ. You can study this the rest of your life. You can turn this thing over and over and over again and look at many different sides of this whole thing called the gospel and the church and the mysteries of, the, uh, of what God has done in drawing sinners to himself. You can look at it from every possible angle and you will never plumb the depths of the riches of Christ. We've tried in the book of Ephesians, just think back to what we studied so far in the book of Ephesians. We have looked in chapter 1 at how God in eternity past designed and formed this entity known as the church through election and through predestination. 
And then how in time he, he saved us through Christ and planted the Holy Spirit within us. And then in chapter 2, how he made us alive when we were dead in our sins. And he caused us to be born again and he raised us up. And not only that, then he put us into this body known as the church, this entity, this body of Christ, this new humanity where Jew and Gentile are all together into one entity known as the church. And we have just scratched the surface. Just barely scratched the surface of the riches of Christ. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are rich. In fact, you're so rich, you can't even count all the riches. Oh, it's so easy, so easy in this life to get focused on what we don't have. I don't have the new car. I don't have the new house. I don't have the latest clothes. I don't have this. I don't have that. If that's you as a Christian, you don't get it. You don't get it because of the riches that are yours in Christ and all the immense wealth that is accrued to your account because of what he's done. And Paul got to preach those. He got to stand up and proclaim the gospel of God's reconciliation through Christ. And he says in verse 8, I'm here to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The job of a preacher is not to tell you what to do. The job of a preacher is not always to tell you this is how you need to live. The job of a preacher is not always to get up and say, here's a list of things that you're supposed to do to live the Christian life. At times, the job of a preacher is simply to say, this is what's been done. This is what Christ has already done for you. This is what's already been accomplished. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, this is what's already been done for you. It's what good preachers do. They will stand up and they will proclaim, not do, 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 but here's what's been done. So you can comprehend and live out those marvelous realities. Friends, that's good preaching. Good preaching extols the riches of Christ. Good preaching will take you down deep into the depth of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Because only when you understand those things can you really live remember a few years ago, actually it was close to 20 years ago now, visited with a missionary in Spokane. This is before I went to seminary. This is soon after Julie and I were first married. Missionary from the Czech Republic. He came and visited us and spent some time with them. And before he shared about his ministry, he, he wanted to know a little bit about us. And so introduced ourselves, our name, and kind of how we got there and what our passion was and Listen to the guys go before me and they were talking about ministry and, and what they wanted to do. And I, I couldn't put in words really what I wanted to say. And then I thought of this phrase right here. So when it came to my turn, I said, you know what? My name is Todd Dykstra and all I want to do is I want to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's not changed. It's not changed in almost 20 years. That's still what I want to do. You, you don't want to get up here and have me tell you stories about myself and Make much of me? You want me to get up here and make much, of, make much of Christ? So, just mark it down. If any of you are still around when I die, put it on my headstone. He preached the unfathomable riches of Christ. Maybe, maybe you should say something about my family. He loved his wife and kids, and he preached the unfathomable riches of Christ, right? 
So just write that down. So if I'm gone, you know, someone does my funeral, just remember that. He preached the unfathomable riches of Christ. Week after week, month after month, year after year, take you down deep into the riches of Christ. That's what he did. That's what Paul did. And that's what we do. Not only that, look at verse 9. There's another part of this message as well. Not not only is the message the unfathomable riches of Christ, it's also verse 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. There's another part to this message. So so vertically, the the preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles will, will tell you all the riches that are yours in Jesus Christ. And then horizontally, he will tell you what's taken place in the church. And how you're brought together into this one body, this one entity known as the church. That's what he's saying here in verse 9. And to bring to light, to photizo, we get our word photograph or photography, to shine the light on something. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Paul says my passion is when it comes to this reality to flip the lights on. To shine a a spotlight on, a searchlight on, on these riches so that you understand what is at stake in the church. It's not just something you do. Not just something you go to. It's something you're a part of. Verse 9, he tells us to bring to light the administration which has been hidden. This This was hidden. This was not known before Christ. This was never anticipated. No one could have ever known that this entity known as the church would ever come into existence. But now it has. And Paul says, I want to shine the light on that thing so that the watching world can understand what the church is about. Staggering. Remember in verse 6, he told us what it was about. Here's the mystery revealed in verse 6. It's that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. That's what it means to be part of the church. You are threefold. You are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. Staggering, staggering reality. That's why when when you get this, you can't just see the church like you normally see it. You can't just be this, well, get to go to church today, check off my religious box for the day. It can't just be something you're a part of, kind of like you're part of the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club. It's not that. This is a living organism, a body where we've been brought together in Christ. And that is the basis for our unity and why we live in fellowship and harmony and peace with one another. This was hidden in God who created all things. See that in verse 9? Hidden in God who created all things. The same God who with a word spoke into existence planets and stars, mountains and oceans. That same creator God also has created this living organism which you and I are a part of. Phenomenal. So we can never, ever... Have a low view of the church. We we can't ever just kind of have a flippant, comfortable view of the church and say, yeah, yeah, I go to church. Christ died for this body. 
And Christ has removed the barriers to bring us together in the midst of all of our different ethnicities and backgrounds and skin colors to be brought together into this one glorious body which was previously hidden. Paul says, that's what I'm preaching. Vertically, I'm preaching to you the message of the riches that are yours in Christ. And then I'm preaching to you horizontally the relationships that you're brought into now as a result of what Christ has done in your life. Phenomenal privilege. The minister, the message, number six, the purpose of this mystery. Now, if you're sleeping, wake up. Because what I'm about to tell you is going to blow your mind. Right? What I'm about to show you is something perhaps you've never seen, never understood, never fathomed before. I'm going to show you that there is so much more going on in the church and at Maranatha Bible Church than you have ever, ever fathomed. There's so much going on right here that heaven is watching. Watch this. Verse 10. What's the purpose of all this mystery? The purpose of this preaching, the purpose of this this mystery, the purpose of all these different things that Paul has just talked about. What's the purpose of all this? Verse 10. So that. And when you see a so that, that means purpose. That means result. That means what he's about to tell you has implications to what he said before. So the purpose of the preaching, the purpose of the administration, which he's been revealed to him, and now he's preaching and disclosing the purpose of this mystery is so that... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You want a reason for why the church exists? It's right here. Verse 10. Friends, there is so much more going on in the church. There is more than meets the eye. You have no idea right now what is taking place in heaven as we're meeting as the body of Christ. He says the purpose of this mystery is so that those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places can see the wisdom of God put on display. That means angels are watching. That that means the heavenly hosts of heaven are watching right now what takes place in the church. Let me explain this to you. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Who are these rulers and authorities? Those are angels. Those are heavenly beings. And that term rulers and authorities refers to different categories of angels. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 21. Look back just in chapter 1. Verse 21, the same terminology is used. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's different categories of angels. That's different structures or strata of angels. They, They are arranged in rule and authority and power and dominion. And the point of that passage is Christ is above all that. So the terminology refers to angels. Go over to chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a reference to demons, which are simply fallen angels. 
So this terminology, rules and authorities and powers, it refers to heavenly creatures, angels. Now what about these angels? Verse 10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it is in the church where the manifold wisdom of God is made known to these angels. So what is this manifold wisdom? Manifold is a word that means multi-varietied, multiple colors, multiple sides, many kinds, multi-variegated. That's what the word multi or manifold means. And Paul is saying here that God's wisdom is multi-sided. It has many colors to it. It has many varieties to it. It has many flavors to it. It has many sides to it. There are many different expressions of God's vast wisdom. And we've been seeing them already in our study of the book of Ephesians. Salvation. Redemption. Sealing by the Spirit. Brought together into one body known as the church. These are all different expressions of the wisdom of God. And Paul is saying that in the church you see it best displayed. It's in the body of Christ that the multi-variegated wisdom of God is put on display. Just look around. There's people of different ethnicities here. There's people with different skin colors here. There's people with different racial backgrounds and heritages here. Where else do you see such an expression of God's manifold wisdom? Who's watching? The angels. The angelic realm is watching. They're taking it all in and they're looking into the church to try and see how this works. And they're trying to fathom the wisdom of God because they've, they've never seen this before. Someone has said that the history of the church is the graduate school for angels. That's a good way to say it. God is the teacher. The angels are the students. The universe is the classroom, the church is the illustration, and the lesson is wisdom. So when you come here on Sunday mornings, school's in session. And the students are not necessarily us, they're the angels. This is phenomenal. Put this all together. The reason God redeems you, and the reason God has saved you, And the the reason God has taken down this dividing wall and brought us together into one entity known as the church, the reason he's done that primarily is for the education of the angels as they exalt God and give him glory for what he's done. That shines a whole different light on what's taking place on Sunday mornings. It's not just about us. It's not just so that we get saved. It's not just that we have a group to to belong to now that has kind of a Christian flavor to it. No, the reason, the purpose for the church is the education of the angels to the glory of God. As they look at this and they watch this and they see this and they scratch their heads and they say, I don't get that. What a wise, amazing God we serve. By the way, the demons do the same thing. You say, how? God gets glory by the wisdom that is manifested in the church because the demons look at that and they have to say, how foolish could we have been 
to forsake that and to run away from the holy God. And so they give God glory in reverse. The angels do it. They give him active glory. The demons do it passively by having to scratch their heads and say, how foolish were we ever to disbelieve God and turn our backs on him. Phenomenal. Let me show you one other passage. First Peter chapter 1. We'll end with this. Because it really, I think, punctuates what Paul is describing here. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Peter's writing about the salvation that you and I enjoy. First Peter chapter 1, he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. So Peter is saying those prophets that wrote about this age that we're now participating in, they kind of looked into this. They tried to examine, how does this work? And who is the Messiah? And how would he come? And when would he come? Verse 11 says they were seeking to know what person or time the spirit within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Here are these Old Testament prophets in their writing and they're not always understanding everything that they're writing. And so they're searching their own writings to try and understand who's the person, who's the Messiah and when is he coming and they're, they're trying to figure out. Verse 12. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here it is. Things into which angels long to look. He says these very realities that we've been studying, these marvelous truths about salvation and redemption in the church, the angels are longing to look into them. And the word look is a word that means is paracupto, which means to stoop or to kind of strain your neck to try and get the best glimpse and the best angle possible. You ever done that? You're just trying to get get something to see and you're just trying to crane your neck and search for it. That's what the angels are doing as they look at the church. How does that work? Man, we've, we've never experienced that before. That's what the angels do with our salvation. That's what they do with the church. That's what they do with the incarnation of Christ. They, they crane their necks, as it were, in an attempt to understand salvation from a vantage point that they have never had. You realize no angel, fallen angel, has ever been redeemed. No demon goes from demon to holy angel. Angels can't be saved. So these... Angels look and they watch and they scratch their heads because they've never seen anything like this before. Someone put it in a song. It says, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. You and I get to participate in something that no angel will ever experience. And not only are we brought to Christ in a relationship with him, we are brought together into this glorious organism known as the church. And the angels are looking at that and they're craning their necks and they're trying to figure out what is this all about? And they give God glory 
for it. That's why in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, you remember what it says in Luke 15? It says, in the same way I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What happens when someone comes to Christ? Heaven erupts in a chorus. They start singing and there's a heavenly choir that breaks out because they, they look at this and they see it and they see how wonderful it is, but they just can't appreciate it because they never experienced it. This is the joy of being a part of the church. Go back to Ephesians 3. Paul says, the reason you and I are saved, the reason Maranatha Bible Church exists, is verse 10. So the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Huh. I wonder what the angels think when they look at our church. I wonder what they're thinking right now. They're watching. They're beholding. They're, they're, they're looking at what you're doing. They're looking at the things that are taking place here. I wonder, what do they see? They see a unified body or a factious body. They see us passionately living for Christ in our holy lives or do they see us dabbling in things of this world? I'll tell you what this does. This demands of us a higher view of the church than most of us probably have. It demands of us a view of the church that is far greater and far more wonderful than any of us really can truly appreciate. That's why I said the church isn't something we do. It's something we are. And we want to live and conduct ourselves in such a way that when the angels watch us, they say, wow. We give glory to God because we don't understand that. I told you this would change how you view the church. Lastly, very quickly, the joy of the mystery. Number seven, the joy of the mystery. Paul says in the final verses, 11 through 13, he says, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He says, friends, it's in prison. I'm in prison. It's okay. Because my tribulations mean glory for God because I'm ministering to you and that's the attitude we want to have. God, bring on the trials. Bring on the tribulations because it enables us to shine forth the message of the gospel for the angels to see and for you, God, to be glorified. Pretty amazing text, isn't it? I hope you leave today saying, I love the church. And I love this church. Father, thank you for showing us an aspect of the church that we have never really considered before. It, Lord, it really does put into light and show us that this body is so much more than we could ever fathom. And the riches of Christ that we enjoy are truly unfathomable. Lord, to you be all glory. To you be all honor for what you've done in saving us and drawing us together into the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.